0: Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan, and if you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, please go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. If you get a chance, please rate and review the show on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, because it really helps us and we really appreciate it. You can follow us on Twitter, at Irish History Pod, and follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. On this episode of the show, my co-presenter, John Dorney, from the Irish Story website, interviewed Dr. Joseph Quinn, a Second World War research associate with the UK National Archives in London and the secretary and co-founder of the Irish Military Heritage Foundation. They discussed Ireland's role in the Second World War and particularly its relationship with Britain. So here is John Dorney and Dr. Joseph Quinn.
1: I'm joined today by Joseph Quinn, who is a World War II researcher at the National Archives in the UK. Uh, thanks for joining me, Joe.
2: Well, thank you very much, John. Very, a great pleasure to be on.
1: Joseph, we're going to talk about Ireland in the Second World War, as it's known here, the emergency. And my first question is, why was Ireland important in World War II? Why would anyone care whether Ireland was neutral or not?
2: There's one very simple reason why anybody would care about Ireland in World War II, and it's to do with our geographic location. Our geographic location, we're lying along the western seaboard of Britain. We share a land border with with the United Kingdom uh, because of Northern Ireland. And it's a 500 kilometre long land border. Very significant. um, Not exactly easy from the point of view of Irish strategic defences or British strategic defences. And then also there is uh, the seaborne defences that Britain has to consider. Uh, the western ports that were handed over in 1938, two in the south and one at Loch Swilly in the northwest, were considered to be among the most important strategic Royal Navy bases in Britain's overseas uh, uh, naval infrastructure. And um, Churchill even referred to the Irish ports as the Sentinel Towers. And the reason is because they're guarding uh, Britain's um, approaches to the North Atlantic and safeguarding the sea lanes by which Britain um, is kept going, by which uh, their trade with North America is maintained, and it's the most important sea lane arguably in the world other than the sea lane that basically goes to the Zeus Canal to India. So it's, a, it, it's, ex, it's an extremely important um, juncture that the Royal Navy Guard and Ireland is critical in the guarding of this defence. But not only that, One has to consider also the air. The advances in uh, aviation have enabled uh, people to make transatlantic flights. So by the 1930s, you have transatlantic basically air routes uh, opened. Ireland is the first port of call when you're crossing the Atlantic coming from North America. And this is very important strategically. And Britain knows this because they know that the Second World War is going to be even more of an air war than the first world war was and the atlantic is going to be critical in this air war and it is basically worked out by the chief of irish army intelligence colonel dan bryan that there is no way that either the british or the americans if they're in the war can fly to and from uh, north northwest europe and um, without flying over irish airspace So in other words, any Allied planes that are going to be flying back and forth across the Atlantic are going to be uh, flying through Irish airspace. They're going to be flying over our coasts. And uh, it's the exact same for the uh, Nazi German forces as well. They will invariably end up having to transgress our our sovereign airspace in order to reach the North Atlantic to mount attacks on British convoys. So Ireland is really slap bang in the middle. Of a sort of a, a very important strategic area in the western approaches and also in, nor- in Northwest, Northwest European defenses such as they are, and particularly um, it's because of its location it's seen as a critical flank of Britain in their defense against the uh, Nazi German forces who occupied the continent of Europe in nineteen
1: 19- yeah and Let's be clear about this. The Irish Army in the interwar years, uh, post-Civil War, was extremely small and lightly armed. So no one was worrying too much about the Irish Armed Forces, uh, so to speak.
2: No, um, they uh, in terms of conventional warfare, the Irish Army, it's not at all equipped or prepared to uh, take to the field as, as a mobile field army or even as sort of a, uh, kind of a pre-World War One. Sort of slogger army, basically with even with uh, horses and you know horse drawn munition wagons and whatever like that even or or even in terms of being sort of a small standing force that guards just the capital of Dublin, it's not adequately prepared to defend the country in that sense, and at the very most, what the Irish army can do is they can manage a delaying action um, if they concentrate in strength upon a, an area where an enemy force makes an initial sort of toehold into Ireland um, as part of an invasion plan. And they might be able to manage some token resistance, but ultimately they will rely on the help of a foreign belligerent power. Um, let's take, for, for example, um, what would happen if, uh, if Nazi German forces invaded Ireland. Presumably they might have landed at Waterford and Irish forces might have resisted them around the Cumber Mountains or perhaps over towards Wexford if they penetrated that deep. But it would have been token resistance, and they would have tried to hold them for as long as possible until uh, the BTNI forces, British troops Northern Ireland, came down across the border to support forces. And there were plans in place to support the Irish army. And this, the W plan was the plan the British had in place to basically very quickly move down south. And it was going to be a three pronged pincer move across the Irish border to secure Dublin. And then forces would come south and essentially secure the landing areas and basically um close in on whatever whatever enemy bridgehead had, had uh, been established so um but in terms of the irish army's own um inner capacity to take on an enemy force um general daniel mckenna the chief of staff of the irish army acknowledged that there were barely there was barely one brigade that could take to the field as a mobile field unit uh, he had grave doubts about the Irish army's ability to actually fight in a conventional sense. And I suppose de Valera, when Malcolm Macdonald makes his famous visit to, uh, to Dublin in June 1940 to offer unity, de Valera um, is asked by Macdonald how he intends to take on a possible German invasion. And de Valera immediately says that he imagines that Although conventional forces might be easily overwhelmed, Deaire immediately acknowledges the weaknesses that the Irish military face that they have. They lack munitions, they lack supplies, they lack armor they lack uh, sufficient air power resources to cover them and um, He acknowledges the desperation uh, the desperate situation that Irish armed forces are in, but he does say that what our fallback will be to uh, basically uh, take to take to the countryside as guerrilla units, and he envisages that any um, invader would be taken on by guerrilla units or guerrilla forces. And while MacDonald is skeptical of this, uh, particularly um, guerrilla units facing armored columns, de Valera has great confidence in the abilities of Irish guerrilla units to actually do big damage to, uh, to an enemy invader and I would imagine that this is probably what would have happened if Ireland had been invaded by either side during the Second World War. And I think that was really our deterrent, particularly towards possible British invasion, uh, the prospect of another guerrilla war.
1: Yeah, I mean, the reason I ask these questions, Joseph, is because when we talk about Irish neutrality and Ireland's entering the war, no one really is talking about Irish troops, you know, invading Normandy really, are they? Ar- Ireland's seaports and, and airports are, are the important thing.
2: Yes, exactly. I mean, they're not, they're not looking at Ireland from the point of view of, uh, from the point of view of Irish troops, um, playing their part in the Allied struggle, which they do in very large numbers. And they play a very impressive role in the British forces or the Allied forces. But the thing is that the, uh, the Irish, their value to the Allied struggle is in basically making a contribution in terms of their own strategic position. So the ports, as you say. Um, but actually, more airfields. Uh, everybody goes on about the ports as if they were the important contribution. And right throughout the war, the main British argument was basically that the ports would have helped enormously. They would have helped, you know, sort of, Royal Navy destroyers, their escorts uh, essentially have a quicker turnaround time, that they would have been able to refuel quicker if they'd been able to dock in an Irish port um, and then basically turn around and go back across the Atlantic to meet the next convoy. Um, there's a very arguments argument about that, but actually, in truth, it's not really the ports that are needed or required. Um, the southern ports, Bearhaven, um, Cove, formerly known as Queenstown, uh, those southern ports are actually, they're not really that useful in a potential um, struggle against the Nazi German forces where Ireland is actually involved in the war and where those ports are in British hands. They're going to be a very limited use uh, because uh, the Nazis have occupied France and the Southern approaches invariably have to be closed because of the fact that the the enemy controls the the European coastline on the other side of that uh, stretch of water what the danger is and where there is a necessity for ownership of Irish territory in order to base um, aggressive forces is um, in the need for airfields because Focke-Wulf Condor 300 Mm. uh, aircraft are crossing over the coast of County Kerry and they're flying up along the um, Irish Atlantic seaboard uh, to north the, the northwest coast of Ireland and they're Basically, they're attacking the convoys that are coming in um, into the foil or past the foil um, and into the channel basically between along the Clyde down towards Liverpool. They're attacking those convoys just as they uh, essentially come within uh, sighting of the Irish mainland and Northern Ireland. And these uh, German flights are wreaking havoc. They're dropping torpedoes, they're dropping bombs. And even General Richard Mulcahy acknowledges in the Dole that if the RAF were able to base just a handful of Spitfires on the coast of Galway or the coast of Mayo, they could do great damage to these German flights that are going up and down along the Irish West Coast. So it's, the ports are not really as useful as the possibility of having airfields in order to sort of guard Irish airspace. Okay. And obviously that, that's not something that the Irish are going to allow it to happen anytime soon.
1: Right. And so back at the time of the Anglo-Irish Treaty in 1922 where the treaty actually says that in time of war they must give the ports to, access to the ports to the Royal Navy to the British and the British of course kept those three ports you mentioned under the treaty but that all changed in 1938 didn't
2: it? In 1938 the Irish delegation that goes across to London end up concluding a major deal which really changes the course of Irish history. I mean, it changes the course of Irish history in a way that's almost uh, the same, it's almost of the same significance as um, the Treaty of 1921, mainly because it undoes um, a lot of the provisions of the Treaty of 1921. And it sends Ireland on a completely different course. Ireland's whole geopolitical position, really after 1938 and even to this day, um, is determined by the terms of that agreement. Because what happens in that agreement is you have tacit acknowledgement of the constitutional changes that have been made by De Valera um, throughout the mid 1930s, culminating in the creation of the 1937 constitution, which is passed by referendum. Um, and this um, changes. Um, Ireland's position, Southern Ireland's position within the British Commonwealth of Nations and in relation to Britain, it, it, it redefines the status of the Irish dominion uh, juridically and makes us a republican all but name. And in 1938, the Anglo-Irish Agreement acknowledges this and it seems to accept this, um, or seems to sort of in a very silent way, acknowledge the fact that Ireland is in a juridically different position and also uh, the annuities question is settled for a payment of around 11 million pounds and this brings to an end the famous issue that, that had created an economic war throughout the 1930s but crucially crucially the irish put, submit to the british that they will require the southern irish ports uh, back these are the three uh, naval facilities that were granted to the british under the terms of the 1921 treaty and without the return of these facilities uh, de valera and his and his ministers as well as the heads of the armed forces are very doubtful that if a war breaks out that we can declare neutrality and not be attacked because the truth about it is it's more than just three naval facilities it's actually this the 1921 treaty grants the british the right to use irish ports generally it's a very loose interpretation it's possible that the british could claim the right to be able to use other irish ports as well it will probably be resisted but the fact of the matter is there's a real danger as a result of this provision in the 1921 treaty that british forces will have some kind of entitlement to have a footing on our soil in time of war and the irish have to undo this arrangement it's the most it's the most pivotal uh, amendment to the treaty um, obligations that we have uh, between ourselves and the United Kingdom. And in making that amendment and in successfully getting that concession from the Chamberlain government of the return of those ports, uh, we are able to remove British boots from Irish soil. And therefore we can legitimately declare neutrality and we can do so um, safely in the knowledge that if we are attacked by Nazi German forces or by any other belligerent who are fighting against Britain, that it will have been unjustified and that um, it will be an attack on sovereign territory.
1: And did Neville Chamberlain expect uh, de Valera to voluntarily grant the use of the ports? I and mean, that's my impression. And kind of it's the only explanation that, you know, makes sense of this, this decision to return, you know, these very strategic assets to era uh, as it was known at the time.
2: Yes, in 1938, I don't think anybody was blind to the, to the notion that if de Valera was given back the ports that they would be damn difficult to get back. I, mean, I think that was the term that was used. And that um, it would be, uh, it would, it, 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 I think there was a, an acceptance generally that uh, once these ports were given back to the Irish that they would never the Irish would never return them in time of war or at any other time. Um, particularly not, If if, if, most people anticipated that a war would break out at some stage. And Churchill, in particular, uh, knows that once these ports are handed over to to the Irish, that basically the Irish will not give them back. And that's when he makes his famous uh, Central Tower speech in the House of Commons, where he talks about those ports by which, you know, sort of the lifeline between, you know, this country and North America is secured. We need those ports, and they are fundamental to our national survival. And uh, also Lord Craig Avon in Northern Ireland, um, while he accepts what Devil Air is doing, he, he, he kind of blithely accepts it, even though you would expect, have expected him to have very aggressively pushed against it. He accepts it, and he kind of accepts what Chamberlain is doing, but he doesn't like it. And he sort of, he's, he's a little bit despairing at this point in his life um he's 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 quite old. he's really past the point where he should have he should have stepped down quite a long long time ago and um, but he um and he fears for the future of Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom part of the empire and um, But when he speaks to Chamberlain about it, he acknowledges that once those ports are are handed over, he said he do realize that if you hand the, those ports back to Devil Air, he will not give them back to you and Chamberlain responds by saying. That may well be the case, but I have sufficient belief in their goodwill to think otherwise. Of yeah. course, Chamberlain Chamberlain is wrong. It's a gamble. He's gambling that the Irish will return the good, some form of goodwill uh, towards this particular gesture that he is making.
1: It's a, it seems very naive on Chamberlain's part, you know, it's a big risk. Mm. In point of, view.
2: of course, of course. But going back to what I was saying earlier about the ports, um, you know being less important than the possibility of having airfields the combined chiefs uh, in a memorandum to chamberlain advised the chamberlain government that and um, the re- retention of the ports was n- not really necessary anymore that they were probably going to have very limited value in any coming war and uh, particularly against germany i think it was probably because they anticipated that Germany would be contained, that the conflict would be contained within the center of Europe. They certainly didn't anticipate the fall of France. Nobody did. Um, It was a shock to everybody how quickly France um, collapsed under the weight of the Nazi German offensive in 1940. But even with the collapse of France, uh, there were many within uh, British establishment that felt that the ports were no good without any airfields to provide air cover, you see, if you go to a place like Gibraltar, in Gibraltar you have an airstrip, you have a runway, and that there you're able to provide air cover um, around that base and in its environments. And it's the same with quite a lot of other bases. bases they have airfields. So in, in naval air power, is as important as sort of conventional sea power. Uh, this is an era, era where war has massively changed, and where like it's no longer a case of battleship versus battleship or submarine versus ship. And um, there's an aerial component which is incredibly important now, and it's going to change the face of naval water. And so this is why these ports facilities are kind of obsolete. The yeah. the, um, the the facilities also include um, you know gun emplacements and very seven other things which are long. Since um, um, gone, uh, become obsolete, and there is an acknowledgement by the British military authorities that the maintenance of these facilities and more is actually quite quite likely not to really contribute much in a struggle. There's also a worry about security during war times. But there's a worry that there might be attempts at sabotage and various different other things. So I think that it was a calculated risk um, that the Chamberlain government took uh, with the advice of their military chiefs and their naval chiefs included um, and they, and they and their naval chiefs signed on the dotted line when it came to the handing back of these ports and there had to be a reason for that
1: yeah well whatever the reasoning was um once the war did break out quite a lot of diplomatic efforts did try to go into getting these ports back didn't it
2: yes um, in June 1940 uh, France collapses and it is it's a disaster for the allies it's a disaster for people who are associated with the allied cause or have connections with the allied cause the united states and the the political establishment in washington they're very concerned roosevelt is appalled Uh, he briefly considers uh contributing some form of help or trying to intervene without bringing this country into the war, but he eventually rolls back and realizes that he can't do that. But there is a there is a, a moment where there, there's a possibility that Roosevelt may intervene at this particular point in the conference to try and save France, to try and do something. Such a desperate situation that it really, really shakes a lot of people. I think Hitler was even astonished by how successfully um, the German offensive had, um, overran the low countries and not effectively knocked France back and was threatening to knock France completely out of the war. And just before um, the French government decided to capitulate, because that's, that is what happened, um, an element was the French government agreed to, to, agreed to sign an armistice uh, with Germany and so it was a capitulation and some people Some people accepted, and some people didn't. most people didn't believe it at the time. but it was in in against that backdrop that the British begin to consider making an approach to the Irish government because they now realize that with French territory in, uh, in the hands of the German forces in the hands of the axis, that they have to um, make sure that they, their their defenses are secured. And Ireland is, um, they consider Ireland to be fundamental to their defenses. And so it, it's because of this that Chamberlain decides, he, he decides to basically bring this up a cabinet level. He, he wants a mission to go to Dublin to make an offer of unity with Northern Ireland in order for those ports to be returned to British custody and also to bring Ireland, Ireland in a very, very real sense, into the war, so that Ireland can be secured at a moment's notice if British forces need to come south in order to make sure um, strategic points are secured uh, to prevent an invasion. And uh, that that can be done. And this is why um, Chamberlain brings this proposal forward in uh, middle in the middle of June, uh, 1940.
1: I'm going to come back to the uh, offer of unity in return for entering the war in in a little bit, Joe. But first of all, I mean, I suppose it wouldn't have surprised many people who are familiar with the career of Eamon de Valera and the previous 30 years of Irish history um, to know why Ireland had declared neutrality. But today, you know, many people across, like, the English-speaking world, um, you know, they find great surprise at this. But what was the thinking of the Irish government and why didn't they enter the Second World War?
2: There are many reasons why um, Southern Ireland, the 26th county state, formerly known as the Irish State, is neutral during the Second World War. Um, but we need to start at the very beginning, at the beginnings of the state's history and the years immediately following the Irish Civil War. Um, as to where the reasoning uh, about being neutral in a coming global conflict, um, where it arose from. And it really comes about in 1925 when the Irish Free State government under W.T. Cosgrave have a meeting to consider various different important questions concerning defence. And it's it's been two years since the civil war came to an end, and the army has been largely demobilised, and they very narrowly avoided a military coup in 1924. And um, there there is an acknowledgement within government circles that it's not just it's not just basically the Republican side that we have to fear, but we also have to fear elements within our own side. So there's an acknowledgement of the divided nature of our society and uh, the volatility of certain elements on both sides. Um, And this acknowledgement feeds into their thinking in terms of national defense in the sense that they know that if there is another conflict on the horizon, and people seem to sense that there may be another, like a reoccurrence of a First World War uh, style conflict um, on the horizon, that that there might be a a return to sort of uh, tensions between major powers, former belligerents, and otherwise. And what do we do in this situation is the question that they ask themselves. And what they immediately decide is, we need to adopt a policy that will mean that Britain will not be threatened in any way by us, that no foreign belligerent will be able to threaten the British by using our territory. So that's their first consideration. Their second consideration is we need to be able to make sure that we don't take a side in this conflict, if we can help it, because there's a real risk that we can actually provoke another civil war if we enter into a major congregation, particularly if these tensions such as they exist in the 1920s are still there. And their thinking is absolutely correct. And in the late 1930s, you know, these tensions still are there. You know, you still have a sort of a, 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 a dormant insurgency in the form of like uh, former IRA people and active uh, IRA uh, extremists in 1930s Ireland. You have uh, blue shirts, you know, sort of under the leadership of Owen O'Duffy, who the authority sphere may have, you know, direct sympathies towards the Axis and who may, in in the event that the Axis somehow overwhelm Ireland and Britain, that they may install O'Duffy as a puppet leader. Um, There are all sorts of fears about what a future conflict might bring to Ireland and the biggest fear, of course, is that Irish sovereignty might come to an end. And de Valera factors all of this in and much of what he does in the 1930s, it's a continuation of the policies that have been put down by the Cum Gael government in the 1920s, and including the policy of neutrality. But de Valera understands that he needs to go a whole lot further. Uh, he knows that the policies that they want to act upon or they would have acted upon um, to keep the country neutral it cannot actually be enabled without uh, Ireland making steps, certain steps towards ensuring that that neutrality can be maintained, and that's why De Valera embarks upon a lot of these constitutional changes. It could be argued also that a lot of De Valera's economic policies, even though they were disastrous in the long run, that they actually helped recalibrate um, the Irish economy um, to get through. A conflict like the second world war and that um, because of all of de valera's economic changes and because of the policy of self-sufficiency that we were able to survive during the second world war um, but one of the things that de valera is um very keen to avoid is the recurrence of another uh, irish civil war and he wants to make sure that Uh, we avoid being drawn into the war um, because he knows that one faction or another might be triggered into insurrection. And he also knows that once war breaks out, everyone will choose a side. Most people will choose a side. They'll either choose the British side or they'll choose the German side. And when neutrality is declared in 1939, there is a broad agreement that this is the correct policy. It's, he's supported by the opposition, and uh, he's supported by many other parties, including the Labour Party under uh, William Norton. Um, and uh, in 1940, just prior to the arrival of Malcolm MacDonald in Dublin to make the offer of unity, de Valera stood on a platform at College Green with uh, W.T. Cosgrave, then leading the Gael party and uh, William Norton leading the Labour Party. And he stood with the support of both these political leaders and made a declaration to a very large crowd of over 10,000 that Ireland would remain neutral no matter what. And this is against the backdrop of the the disastrous, you know, collapse of the British Expedition Force and their evacuation from Dunkirk. And the ongoing situation where France are basically, they're in the death throes of the struggle against Nazi Germany. And it's this it's this resoluteness and this determination to adhere to this neutral policy and also the broad public support that de Valera is getting that means that neutrality is a policy that will not not die a death and it will be maintained um, at a very popular level within the country.
1: What role did the fear of aerial bombing play in, in neutrality?
2: Definitely, aerial bombing was a big fear uh, right throughout Europe at this particular moment in time. And um, the Chamberlain government anticipated that an aerial bombardment of London would level half the capital in a matter of weeks. And um, in 1938, this is about a year before the war actually uh, breaks out, and this is during the Munich crisis. So there's an anticipation that um, that aerial bombardments will cause huge destruction but actually there's more of a fear of gas attacks in 1938 and 1939 and even right through to 1940. One of de Valera's biggest concerns is the fact that uh, the Irish population really don't have um, access to uh, essentially uh, protective masks or any protective equipment that can defend them from biological warfare. We don't, basically, we don't have gas masks. They have them in Britain, but we don't have them. We have a, a very small supply, mainly for military use. So we're basically unequipped, we're unprepared. Um, De Valera even says this in 1942 to Malcolm macdonald uh, he, uh, he conveys his anxiety. And one of the main reasons why he's reluctant to contemplate an end of neutrality because he says Dublin is completely unprepared for the possibility of an aerial attack, we have no gas masks. We don't have sufficient air raid precautions in place. We don't have, we don't have, uh, um, sufficient anti-aircraft defences. We don't have bomb shelters. Um, we uh, and they also they lack helmets as well. Um, it is something as basic as a sort of a, um, a helmet for wardens. Um, they don't even have enough helmets for the for their uh, troops. So it's a, it's a real problem. Um, that they're facing, and um, really and truly, I think if we had become involved in the war, one has to ask ourselves retrospectively, what would the country have gained? What would Ireland have actually gotten out of being involved in the Second World War? Apart from basically a generous help and a martial aid, yeah, we'd get lots of martial aid and sort of a slap on the back, but then, you know, most of uh, George and Dublin would have been raised to the ground, and for what possible, Purpose. Now De Valera, I think, was um, correct in his judgment. Um, the risk uh, to the Irish state was far too great. A war was something we could not afford, and neutrality was our best guarantee of maintaining our sovereignty and keeping our cities safe, keeping our population safe. And although there might have been drastic long-term economic consequences and bitterness from a lot of the main allied stakeholders and powers that were involved in the war for the fact that we hadn't come involved in the war. In the long run, um, the modern Irish state was saved an ordeal which overwhelmed and very nearly destroyed a lot of European nations.
1: Indeed, the Irish government so stayed neutral, as you, you said, throughout the war, and they didn't give access to these ports
2: or airfields. But what aid did they give to the British side? They gave aid to the British side in the form of intelligence reports, uh, weather reports, in terms of supply shipments, uh, we supplied food to Britain, and many people laid that down, but not least uh, Churchill himself. Churchill famously said in a a communique to uh, Roosevelt that he said, we don't need the food that Ireland is sending us, but that's not true at all. I mean, uh, when uh, at one point in the Irish government uh, proposed to cut the supply shipments of Guinness, uh, to britain um because of the fact that they were at the receiving end of so many shipping restrictions from the british side the british nearly had a coronary um at the other side of the of the irish the they uh, said no 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 no, you can't but supply can so <laughs> our, basically our shipments of guinness to uh, britain were clearly extremely important as were our supply shipments of, of other supplies of other uh, essentials and Even though we had rationing, we had a plentiful supply of various different things, fruit and vegetables, meat, dairy produce. There was a lot of things that we had in this country that were severely rationed or were almost non-existent in other uh, European countries. We also um, provided manpower, very crucially, towards the British war effort. One of the uh, knock-on consequences of being neutral is the fact that we uh, got 95% of our imports basically slashed And that meant that our industries were crippled and there was high unemployment. There were about half a million unemployed in Southern Ireland in 1939. And this grew steadily uh, to nearly 650,000. And um, the unemployment problem was alleviated by the fact that our authorities permitted Irish people, men and women, to leave these shores to work in Britain, they were able to work in the booming war industries. They were able to work in even in Northern Ireland, and um, up to between between one hundred and seventy and two hundred thousand Irish were believed to have worked in the war industries. And we still have no definitive figure for how many served in the armed forces. But uh, what what I can tell you is that over seventy thousand uh, Irish, nor- from North and South, male and female. Enlisted in the Northern Ireland recruiting area, and no such tallies were kept in other recruiting districts in Britain Scotland, Wales, and England. Um, but it was believed that because we had there was such a large Irish community in Britain that an equal or larger number may have joined. It was said by Hubert Delapierre Goff that according to information that he procured through a contact in the War Office in 1944, July 44 that somewhere in the region of 165,000 next-of-kin addresses were recorded in era in Southern Ireland alone. And it was always believed that as many as a quarter of a million Irish had served in the British forces during the Second World War. It was, it's probably closer to just over 200,000, uh, according to some estimations that certain uh, historians, such as Richard Doherty and Yvonne McCune, have made when, in doing the number crunching based on variables like the death rate and various other others. But we'll only be able to find that out by examining the uh, British service records from the Second World War whenever they're released in digital form.
1: And do we know how many died in the the British Armed Forces?
2: Uh, How many Irish? Uh, North and south, uh, 12,000. That's a figure that that, uh, Dr. Yvonne Kuhn came up with about about seven eight years ago and she conducted a research project in uh, the university of edinburgh and this was the figure that she came up with based on the number of uh, members of the public uh, plus other research um that um essentially was submitted by people to the research center um about the numbers of irish that had died and she compiled the role of honor of Irish North and South, that died in the Second World War. And subsequent to the publication of that role, which had about 10 she received so many contact inquiries from other members of the public that she was able to adjust that figure to around about 12,000. And uh, if you play with that figure, you're able to actually uh, come up with, um, based on the death rate, you're able to come up with a figure of just over 200,000. In fact, it's probably as many as 210,000 that served from the island of Ireland, which actually roughly equates to the figure uh, of Irish who served in the British Armed Forces during World War One.
1: I. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say that. I mean, the difference is, though, that the casualty rate was a lot less, though. I mean, the First World War, you yeah, between thirty-five yeah. 50,000 killed from Ireland. Yeah, there's a,
2: there's a very simple reason for that. It's because of the way in which the war has been fought. Um, we both know Jonathan Fennell and Jonathan Fennell would agree that the way in which um, the British fought, the Second World War was markedly different to how it was fought, fought in the First World War. For one thing, the British had a very small army on the continent of Europe uh, prior to the Dunkirk evacuation in 1940, um, although that was in keeping with what had happened in the First World War, in 1914, where there was also a small BEF, uh, The fact of the matter is that the British didn't, they didn't have plans to deploy a major uh, continental force such as, the, such as what they had done in the First World War where there had been five, six, nearly six um, British armies deployed in Europe. No, they're not planning on deploying major field armies until they realize that if they have to invade the continent of Europe, they need a major army, and they build the army up. And that's the army they send in, about a, an army of about a million men in the course of the Normandy invasion and in the invasion of Northwest Europe. But it's a different kind of war, and it's not this sort of attritional fighting that occurred right throughout the course of the First World War. Essentially, it's two entrenched armies trying to break a stalemate, and you know you have essentially um, industrial grinding attrition of both sides. The Second World War is markedly different, and it's a war uh, that the Allies fight uh, using uh, steel, not flesh, technology rather than flesh and blood, and um, they. Uh, they have bomber war, they have, a, they have a fighter war, they have a war at sea. But um, the land conflict uh, from a British point of view is considerably limited. It's in North Africa and it's in a few other small theatres. But there's no sustained armed conflict on land, such as what happens in the previous war. And that's really what resulted in a lot of the casualties that you saw in the First World War, particularly with Irish casualties. They were in a lot of these major salience like the Somme and Ypres and in Gallipoli where there were major efforts to kind of break a deadlock or break a stalemate and break enemy defences which resulted in just basically mass slaughter.
1: Yeah you have um, Irish kind of disproportionately in, in infantry units in World War I as well. Um, but just m- moving on though Joseph, Britain did get certain things from Ireland as you mentioned. It got intelligence, naval intelligence, air intelligence. It got recruits, it got food, it got uh, industrial workers. But the thing they didn't get was the thing that they most wanted, so the ports and, and the airfields. And against this background, they made a couple, a couple of what are kind of exceptional, noteworthy offers of, of Irish unity in return for Ireland joining the war. Can you speak a bit about them?
2: The offer of unity was presented to de Valera in the first meeting that he held with Malcolm MacDonald on the 17th of June, 1940. This had been prepared for by the British War Cabinet for at least a week in advance of MacDonald's arrival. Uh, Chamberlain had uh, previously considered this idea of offering unity in return for sort of bringing Ireland, Southern Ireland, or into the, back into the British fold. I think this is an objective that Neville Chamberlain truly cared about. It marks the last attempt by Neville Chamberlain to solve a border dispute uh, in Europe before he dies. He dies in November 1940. So, one can see shades of what he tries to do with, you know, the the Czechoslovakia crisis and the various different other dispute resolutions that he was involved in um, in Europe in the lead up to the Second World War. But he reopens an old channel which he had used in previous negotiations of the devil era. Malcolm Macdonald had been involved in back-channel negotiations to resolve a deadlock in the economic war in the 1930s. this was basically about making a sort of a deal in terms of like return in return for cattle imports and the Irish would agree to coal import. They'd, they'd buy a sort of a lump sum of essentially British coal or Welsh coal to sort of break the economic war in 1936. And um, Malcolm MacDonald and de Valera actually got on extremely well. That's why MacDonald was chosen for this mission. So when he presents the offer or presents the idea of De Valera basically coming into the war, or at the very least allowing the British to move their vessels into the ports and allowing British soldiers to come south of the border and basically man strategic locations alongside Irish troops, in tandem with Irish troops. Uh, De Valera refuses this, and he refuses several proposals that Malcolm MacDonald puts to him. And at that point, MacDonald unfolds this plan for unification. He broaches it with him, and uh, de Valera indicates that this would probably, he doesn't know what the attitude of his own government would be, but that he will talk to them and get back to MacDonald about, about, about what their opinion is. MacDonald goes back to London, they discuss the whole idea, and then MacDonald gets the green light to make a formal offer. And It's not really an offer in legal terms, it's an invitation to treat some MacDonalds, goes back to Dublin, he arrives over on the 21st and and on the 21st of June, it's around the 21st of June, representatives of the French government meet their German counterparts and sign the armistice in Compiègne. This marks the fall of France which is formally announced on June 25th but it's everybody knows that France is about to fall so Britain's bargaining position is severely reduced and This affects, it really prejudices what's been put on the table by Britain, because the Irish perceive this as sort of reaching out in a moment of weakness and sort of an attempt to kind of drag Ireland into the British fold before things really hit crisis point and the uh, the opinion of a lot of members of the irish government a lot of de Valera's subordinates is that uh, essentially britain are probably going to lose the war and uh, that this is essentially this is a desperate act some are very skeptical they don't really take it seriously people like sean lamass are receptive to the idea of ireland coming into the war surprisingly um, and in return for unity and he, but one of the things he believes is that it should, there should be a consent principle involved. De Valera actually concurs with this that the unionists have to accede to this whole idea. That's the position the mass favors. And Frank Aiken is the hardliner within the cabinet. Aiken believes that Ireland should not enter the war, that it should stick to neutrality, but that there should be unity uh, between North and South without the unionists being consulted or without their. Consent been required, so essentially Aiken's position, in fact, is basically we're not going to give up our neutrality, no matter whether unity is offered to us or not. And he's not particularly interested in the unionist position.
1: Aiken obviously is from is from originally yes north of the border, yes. and he, he's, he had, yes. He's, you know, and where is he got involved in the civil war in the south? Kind of by mistake a little bit, but his priority yeah. was always at that time ending partition. So he, you know, he's a real hardline on the on this issue.
2: Yes, he is. He, he totally is a hardliner on this issue. And the fact, like, I mean, he's from he's from county. I think he's from county Armagh, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, you know, he's from near Come very strong. Yeah, uh, he's got very strong opinions on this issue, un- understandably. And uh, you know, Air also shares his his point of view. Air, one of the things that he he says to Macdonald in the, their first meeting is, you know. If there wasn't the existence of partition, our position might be a little bit different. We might consider offering more help than we're prepared to at this very moment in time. Maybe, I think even hints that possibly even the ports might be handed back to Britain if there wasn't the fact that there was the partition of the island. Now, I don't think this is really serious. I think this is kind of a bluff on de Valera's part but MacDonald um, and De seem to be, it's almost, they seem like they're sparring over a variety of issues, but they're not really. It's sort of, um, uh, it, McDonald makes a proposal, Mayer, De Valera makes a counter proposal, um, and essentially it seems to get to a point where basically they agree on a compromise, which is essentially that the UK government will um, make a declaration of the United Ireland in principle, and that essentially a joint council, a joint body representing both jurisdictions would be drawn up and constitutional arrangements would be made. In the British want to do this, they're prepared to do this in return for the possibility that Ireland might either come into the war on the Britain's side, or at, at the very least, give over some of those naval facilities to uh, British custody. What happens is that the offer ultimately is rejected by de Valera on the 4th of July, 1940. And he says in his letter, it's actually delivered courtesy of John Delante, the Irish High Commissioner in London, who delivers a letter that comes from the Department of Foreign Affairs, a personal letter addressed from de Valera to Neville Chamberlain. And in the letter, de Valera very respectfully explains to Chamberlain why he cannot accept this offer and he said he says that under the circumstances we don't believe this is a workable r- arrangement he said we we believe it will eventually fail and be frustrated and that it will not ultimately materialize but curiously one of the things that he mentions in the letter is the fact that the unionist government in Northern Ireland under Lord Craig Abbott don't seem don't appear to have been consulted and that even if they were consulted and even we were to engage with them, that it would involve such compromises that we would not be able to contemplate. And it's this whole idea of having to bargain with the Unionist establishment that seems to be beyond De Valera's ability. ability. Probably, probably he, he personally might be willing to have a go at it, but I think people like Aiken in his cabinet would probably be absolutely opposed to this and that he could... End up splitting his government, his government could fall. And he doesn't really think that uh, ultimately this will work. That's really what leads to uh, his consideration and ultimate rejection of the offer.
1: I mean, De Valera's constitution of 1937 actually claim, has a claim, of course, to, to the North Articles 2 and 3. But there's, you know, you could call into question whether De Valera at any point really in his career post 1922. Is, is serious about ending partition
2: it is a nationalist dream to end partition it's the last great task as you know and um, that a lot of uh, very committed irish nationalists and republican nationalists hold very close to their hearts this whole idea of the united ireland but it seems like this very ethereal kind of you know sort of uh, um dream or uh, aspiration that may never be realised, beyond our reach, but something that we nonetheless aspire to, ultimately, um, uh, as a nation, as a nation state, uh, national unification. Um, and for de Valera, this is something that's very real. It's a very real injury that has been done to the Irish nation, the fact that the, the nation has been cloven into two parts, and that part of the island remains separated from the rest of this is this for de Valera is a really serious injury and which i think he feels feels it on behalf of the irish people and he communicates this in much of his diplomacy with the british uh, on a fairly regular basis ad nauseum. the british get really tired of it but they acknowledge that this is a fundamental problem which is probably one of the reasons why chamberlain wanted to put this on the table but when Chamberlain does put it on the table, he has the very unenviable task of informing Lord Craig Avon of what's been going on sort of two thirds of the way through these negotiations in late June 1940. And when Lord Craig Avon finds out, he un- understandably blows a gasket and um, he writes a famous telegram to Chamberlain and says, I'm profoundly shocked and disgusted that you would have ventured you know, discuss such things behind my back without any pre-consultation with me. And then the famous lines, to such treachery, to loyal Ulster, I shall never be a party, resounds through the corridors of power uh, in London. And Chamberlain actually feels kind of uh, kind of a, a knockback from, Chamber- from Craig Avon's shock. In fact, actually, what was very interesting about this particular episode was how many people within the Unionist establishment in the North were prepared to actually contemplate This possibility. Uh, Case in point is a future Northern Ireland Prime Minister, uh, Basil Brooke, who formed part of a section, cross section, a younger cross section of unionist opinion that were prepared to consider the possibility of doing this if it meant that the whole of Ireland was brought into the war on Britain's side and that they could secure Ireland and make Ireland safe within the allied sphere against a german invasion yes they were actually prepared to contemplate this and uh, brooke was an example
1: in context of unionist opposition to uh, irish self government and rule from dublin it's it's amazing that anyone would contemplate it in unionist ranks
2: yes yeah absolutely it's, it's a fascinating sort of introspection into sort of how far uh, some unionists were prepared. Like Brooke was a Brooke was a very committed unionist, and he he was by no means a moderate. But he had contacts uh, in the south, and he had you know he had connections with Dublin. And um, there was actually one confidant of Brooke who ended up making an approach to Aiken, sort of in a, in a visit to Dublin, and he ended up speaking to Aiken just in passing, and Aiken. <laughs> turned around and sort of said, let's just get this clear. We will not be abandoning on neutrality. And that was really, and that was the end of it.
1: Bacon had a trip to America in late 1940, I think it was, and he was asked, would you join the war, you know, in return for unity? And he said, no. He said, uh, we're we're unity and freedom, not unity and slavery.
2: One of the things I have to say is that um, we often think of de Valera as this, you know, sort of, he's this unquestioned, sort of leading figure within Irish Republican nationalism. He's, you know, Dev, the chief, that nobody questions him, that he's in absolute control, and that nobody would dare cross him. But in fact, actually, when you see the interaction that happens between De Valera, and Lamas, who meet Malcolm MacDonald on his third visit to Dublin, third visit in 10 days, he's pretty exhausted at this point, and he's nearing the end of his attempt at shuttle diplomacy. And in this lunch, um, Lamas tries to be reasonable and de Valera stays silent and Aiken does most of the talking. And whenever Lamas tries to make a reasonable proposal, Macdonald notes that Aiken quickly cuts him off and he just dominates the whole conversation. So it's very clear that Aiken is just he's not just a hardliner within de Valera's government, but he's a person of considerable power and influence. He doesn't, he, he, he will never rise to the top, as we know, but he actually does seem to control a cross section, a powerful cross section of opinion within the higher ranks of the Fall party. And he's somebody that De Valera has to appease. On the other side of the IRC in London, the fact that Chamberlain still has this power and ability to make this attempt to do a back channel deal with the irish possibly trading northern ireland in return for ireland's involvement in the war is likewise an indicator of even though chamberlain has resigned that he's no longer prime minister the fact that he still has quite a lot of uh, power and he's somebody that has to be consulted he's somebody that has to be um, brought in on major decisions you know sort of command decisions that uh, churchill has to make and that the fact, churchill himself is not actually massively keen on this whole idea, mainly because he doesn't want to... He, he personally thinks that this is um, kind of letting down Northern Ireland and letting down sort of the, loy- the loyalties of the unionists, and he doesn't want to let them down, and he wants to protect their interests as well. Uh, yeah. But he's prepared to sort of... He's prepared to allow Chamberlain and MacDonald to have their crack at the bit and basically... make an attempt at it. Curiously also, um, Churchill is not entirely convinced, contrary to what he says later in the war, he's not entirely convinced that Southern Ireland needs to be involved in the war, that there's any real military necessity for Southern Ireland being brought into the war. That's a very interesting point uh, in light of what he would later say about Irish neutrality, particularly in his victory speech at the end of the war.
1: Yeah, I mean... But Winston Churchill, unlike Chamberlain, ha- had a really long history with Ireland. I mean, he's involved in the Home Rule crisis back in 1912. He's one of the negotiators of the treaty in 1921 and, and implementation in 1922, you know, the start of the Civil War. He's familiar with De Valera. I mean, he's on opposite sides to him almost all the time. But uh, he seems to have a much more belligerent attitude towards Ireland, though. He says a lot of very derogatory things, but he also says things like uh, Ireland has legally no right to be neutral. He says that in confidence, I think. But uh, what is his attitude towards Ireland
2: in in the war? Churchill's attitude is kind of a, it's a kind of a with us or against us attitude. He adopts this attitude with certain Irish people. And when I say certain Irish people, I'm talking about what Churchill calls Dublin Irish. He uh, he makes this uh, distinction between um, two kinds of Irish people, uh, the people who are with us, um, you know, sort of fighting in our armed forces, or who used to fight in our armed forces, you know, and live, you know, in in London or wherever else, you know, southern Irish Protestants um, who are basically still have their crumbling enclaves uh, back home in Ireland, but uh, basically swan around London or basically maybe re-enlist in the armed forces, with whom he has quite a lot of connections, you know, members of the British establishment, uh, people like Brendan Bracken, various different other, you know, sort of Southern Irish civil servants who were working in the British civil service. He has uh, very close connections with lots of Irish people from Southern Ireland. Uh, so he's not anti-Irish by any stretch of the imagination, but he, he does very much judge an Irish person by their loyalties. You see this um, around the time of the formation of the 38th Irish Brigade in uh, 1942 you have a, a leading Anglo-Irish advocate of the rights of neutral Ireland, General Sir Hubert de la Gough, former commander of the British Fifth Army, who essentially represents the cause of neutral Ireland and argues that, you know, neutral Ireland is actually playing quite an important part in our struggle in the war and they're actually doing quite a lot. A lot of volunteers from Southern Ireland are joining the armed forces and they're, you know, you know, they're doing extremely well in our armed forces, and um, Churchill's aware of this. He talks about Paddy Finucane, uh, the fighter ace, essentially leading possibly a squadron of southern Irish aviators, like the Shamrock Squadron, it's known as, it never gets off the ground. But he does decide to pay tribute to the number of Irish who were in the armed forces by creating an Irish Brigade, the 38th Irish Brigade. And uh, he writes in one of his documents um, discussing this idea, the scheme, uh, and this is very revealing of how he, how he views Irish people. He said, we have free French and Vichy French, so why not loyal Irish and Dublin Irish? When we consider his victory speech at the end of the war and the way he castigates Southern Ireland or neutral Ireland for, you know, frolicking with the German and Japanese legations to their, to their heart's content and essentially de- denying the use of the ports and various different other things that he says um, towards you know, Southern Ireland and their, you know, their lack of helpfulness in helping uh, Britain and the Allied cause. He also points out at variance uh, with the instincts of the thousands of Southern Irishmen who flocked to the ranks to prove their ancient valour. This is what he says. He kind of balances his critique of the neutral Irish state with a glowing tribute towards those Irish who fight in British uniform, who help Britain in the war. It's a slur balanced with also a, uh, a glowing praise or glowing credit of, the, of Irish valour and of the Irish, individual Irish contributions towards the war that consistently addresses towards an Irish audience. But Irish people only ever really pick up on the slurs of their country uh, rather than the praising of their ancient valour. And most Irish people that hear that speech in 1945 are appalled, disgusted, particularly those in uniform. They feel extremely offended by what uh, Churchill appears to hold in his heart towards their country. And um, there are accounts of Irish officers, uh, RAF officers in a bar celebrating victory in Europe a couple of days afterwards. um, And they hear this speech them all in the bar and they finish their drinks and they walk out and that's the end of their victory celebrations.
1: Yeah um, like Churchill's uh, speech on the E-Day you know it does go out of its way to castigate neutral Ireland but I mean it's possibly more serious in, in ni- around 1940 the time when there's possible invasion of, of Britain by Germany and uh, according certainly to Robert Fisk's book In Time of War Churchill did contemplate using force to take the ports and whatever they needed in the south of Ireland. That's true.
2: Um, we've got a very interesting episode. The history of Ireland during this this time is British contemplation of an aggressive incursion into Irish territory by sea and by land. But when one considers the W plan, the W plan—forgive the pun—it's a, a double-edged plan because it, it can either be used as a plan to get sort of British forces into Ireland. In support of Irish forces in the event of a German invasion, or it can be used as just an outright British invasion of Ireland. You have a force arranged uh, not too far away from the border with Cavan, and uh, this force has up to 250 armoured vehicles and tanks in it. You also have British 3rd Division on the Louth border, which are going to basically uh, sweep down towards north Dublin, and presumably try and secure Collins Town. It's a three-prong thrust down into the south, and it's very clearly a pincer move to secure Dublin. And then you have Royal Marines who would be brought across um, the Irish Sea from Milford Haven, and you have also RAF squadrons, basically, they'd be brought into the airfields, which would be secured at Baldonnell and in Collins Town. Now, this I'm talking about a plan that was designed in cooperation with the Irish to basically secure Ireland in cooperation with Irish forces. But at the same time, this is, if you look at the plan, you can see very clearly that this is something that can be used as a weapon of aggression and um, if Britain decides to make an aggressive incursion into Irish territory. Also, there would be seaborne landings in the south. But this was the less practical aspect of uh, British plans to, to sort of get into southern Ireland. I think this formed part of the plan to just simply seize the ports, or basically just to claim back the ports. There would be a British force that would go into parts of Cork and basically occupy certain parts of Cork and pacify the area and just secure the key facilities, and not occupy the entire county. And Bernard Law Montgomery, was actually then Lieutenant General, was detailed of his role in the plan, and he was told that he would be uh, involved in the invasion of parts of cork and he just asked very simply uh how many divisions will i have for this operation and he's told by the war office you will have one division just and he said one just one and then he After a moment of thoughtful silence, he said, I'm going to have quite a party in Cork with just one division.
1: But Cork was a place Montgomery
2: knew from the War of Independence days as well. Indeed, indeed, it is in his previous experience during the War of Independence. And one should note that Montgomery was not exactly very sympathetic towards the Irish Republican cause. Uh, He had very, very, uh, very particular views of, uh, you know, sort of what should be done with Irish rebels or Irish uh, Republican irregulars. But one of the things that uh, Montgomery did appreciate was the fact that uh, the Irish were likely to fight a very aggressive guerrilla campaign, which would be beyond British resources. And I think this ultimately forms part of British considerations of potential operations to, you know, sort of take back naval facilities or to, invade Ireland outright they consider you know it's not the problem here is not how quickly we can occupy certain uh, strategic points or positions or how um, quickly we can overwhelm um, Irish conventional forces or subdue the population it's what comes after that's going to be the problem the British know and I think they're quite right in their fears that there will be a very substantial guerrilla campaign mounted against them There is, such as happening right across europe one should have no illusions as to what would have happened if the british had attempted to uh, invade and occupy southern ireland uh, it would have been a, a resistance movement would have been formed and there would have been an armed resistance uh, on the same scale of uh, perhaps worse than what had happened during the irish revolution um in between 1919 and 1921 yeah um, one of the
1: interesting things that I'm almost amazed it doesn't get much attention, but there's an extremely anti-British kind of clique in the Irish Army as well, who are mostly former Free State officers. I'm thinking of the likes of Hugo McNeil and Niall McNeil. Um, But, you know, really anti-British, you know, they were approached by Goertz, the German agent, with a view to getting uh, weapons from the Germans, you know, and they were very receptive
2: to this idea. True, true. And I must admit that I'm less familiar with this particular um, phase, but I can, what I can tell you on uh, this particular episode, uh, Gordon's episode, and the approach to Hugo uh, McNeil, but I, what I would say to you is that uh, there are various different opinions about what the stance was of the Irish Army officer corps in the war. I mean, uh, the historian of the Irish Army, um, uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, John Duggan, Duggan himself was a young officer during the emergency. And he made the observation in an interview with Benjamin Grubford Skiven. In his opinion, the senior ranks of the Irish Army officer corps the senior officers tended to be pro-British, whereas the junior officers inclined more towards Germany. And I think the reason for this, particularly junior staff officers, were enamored by uh, Germany was because they genuinely admired and respected a lot of German uh, officers like Rommel and Rundstedt and Guderian for you know their resourcefulness for their tactfulness their bravery and their you know their essentially their genius uh, as they saw it and um, in terms of in terms of ideological sympathies uh, John um, I would have to say that it's this question is less clear and the reason why I I would be hesitant to speculate about what the sympathies were of the Irish Army officer and the reason why that there has not been sufficient research done on the Irish Army during the Second World War uh, or during the emergency. We don't understand enough about how it operated. I've done a little bit of work on uh, the Irish Army uh, and interviewed um, men who deserted from the Irish Army to join the British forces. And I learned more about what the Irish Army was like through their interviews than I did reading any textual sources that exist. And one of the things we will need to do is we will need to heavily quantify and analyze existing sources, oral histories and whatnot, in order to understand what the thinking was within the Irish Army, what the the mentality was within the ranks, what the mentality was within the officer corps. What morale was like, and essential, and more importantly, this particular question that you're talking about about uh, ideological affiliations, because that is a very interesting question, and we really do need to find that out.
1: Yeah, I mean, I only have kind of anecdotal uh, information about yeah. it. I mean, certainly, you know, as you mentioned, Dan Bryan, who is the head of intelligence, is basically hand in glove with British intelligence. Yes, Now, now on orders. He's not. It's not off his own bat. But it's, you know, there are there are kind of veterans of the old IRA and the particularly the National Army, the Free State Army who would have had sympathies in the other direction, to be honest. But, you know, we've talked about the um, the British plans towards Ireland, military plans, and so we, we before we get to the end, we should talk a little bit about possible German plans um, to invade
2: Ireland. The main plan that they, the Germans draw up, uh, Operation Emerald, or Operation uh, Grun, Fall Grun, the main German plan to attack Ireland. And uh, the, uh, the plan is very simple, essentially, it involves... Um, airborne and seaborne invasion very much resembles what they did in Norway. And actually in some ways, both the Irish and the British anticipate that uh, this might be the case, that there might be a Norway-style invasion of of Southern Ireland. And uh, the the plan, if I recall correctly, calls for an invasion uh, along the south and the western coasts. And there is actually... uh, um, a particular place identified. It's near enough to Trimore. It's Duncannon, I believe, around Duncannon in this southern coast of Wexford over towards Waterford. This German incursion, um, the main seaborne incursion, would happen around there and that they would actually make a thrust into the uh, central Leinster towards Carlow and into Kilkenny. Uh, but a lot of it does count on the airborne element. And the Irish military intelligence and... Um, Senior, uh, senior uh, military commanders uh, do genuinely believe that lakes and large bodies, inland bodies of water, are possible landing sites for uh, German sea boats, and that indeed the paratroopers will be used um, to sort of secure uh, inland strongpoints. But um, the fact of the matter is that this plan is entirely contingent upon German naval power and also the ability of, uh, you know, their airborne forces to be able to cross vast distances across a large stretch of water, such as you know the Celtic Sea or St. George's Channel, whatever whatever you want to call it. It's a, it's a large body of water, and it involves a, you know, it's a considerable crossing to make for both aircraft. And also uh, surface vessels, and one has to remember that the Germans have lost a great portion, perhaps up to fifty percent, of their surface naval assets. And they really spent themselves um, in terms of their naval abilities in trying to get uh, seaborne forces into Norway. It was an it was an incredible effort, a great gamble. It ultimately paid off. Um, the only reason why the, the Germans were, w- would have been so daring as to embark upon an invasion of a place like Norway, which is so far away, uh, is because of the considerable mineral resources that they feel they need to secure and also because of its strategic importance. But because they have exhausted so much of their naval resources in trying to land in Norway, that they would not have had the ability to do that um, with Ireland if unless of course they were able to launch sea line and they cannot launch sea line uh, for one reason. Um, first of all, they can't gain air superiority over Southern England during the battle of Britain. They try and they fail. They didn't really, frankly, I don't, I don't think the German um, commanders really thought that they could actually secure any form of air superiority over the south coast of England. And even if they did, uh, if they tried to cross the English Channel, it was quite possible that the Royal Navy would come down from Scapa Flow and completely obliterate their amphibious uh, landing force. So uh, the Royal Navy and the supremacy of the Royal Navy and the fact that the Royal Navy, Royal Navy outnumber the uh, German Kriegsmarine by a factor of 15 to 1 in terms of surface vessels, is a factor that basically plays very much against the idea of either sea lion or Falgrind being successful. Irish military commanders and uh, Irish political leaders are both of the opinion that a German invasion of Ireland is highly unlikely. In fact, I think they generally seem to accept that an invasion would be impossible. I think they're sceptical when the British make this approach in 1940 uh, on the premise that a German invasion is imminent. I think the Irish are extremely sceptical. And I think the Irish military and political leadership determined that the only likely source of an invasion is uh, uh, Britain and British forces in Northern Ireland. I think, I think they're correct in this assumption. And that's why when uh, people wonder to themselves why the vast majority of Irish army artillery was stationed on the border, uh, it's very clear that actually that was the strategic calculation that was made by the Irish military leadership that if there is an invasion, it's going to come across the Irish border. It's not going to be a German invasion on the south coast. But and at the same time, you know, getting to my next point, I suppose um, one one has to also take into account the very real, tangible cooperation that went on between the Irish military and the British military.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the other aspect of German um, involvement in Ireland is there is a certain
2: amount of, of espionage where they attempted to link up with the IRA or the parachuting of German agents, Abwehr agents, into Ireland uh, to link up with um, what the British refer to as fifth columnists and essentially pro-German elements of the Irish population and IRA members. It personified by you know the Gort's uh, mission. Um, essentially, the uh, Herman uh, comes to Ireland. He's parachuted in, and he manages to he he manages to last the longest of uh, any German agent that's basically parachuted into Ireland. And um, the mission that Goertz has is to essentially uh, meet with the uh, leadership of the IRA in Ireland, and essentially, particularly that branch of the IRA. Because not, one has to remember that not all IRA members are, sent, are involved in a conspiracy against the Irish state or are prepared to go to war against Britain the way the IRA, such as it exists under leading members like Sean Russell are willing to commit it. But Goretz himself discovers this, and he finds the IRA leadership to be, you know, to be a bit disillusioned, to be very disorganized, and they don't seem to have a huge amount of willpower. They seem to have been beaten down very successfully by Fianna Fall policy throughout the 1930s, you know, constant suppressions by double era of the organization have just really left the organization largely beheaded and were just not really in a position to actually mount sort of insurrection that Gortz and his superiors in Berlin and elsewhere are um, hoping for. And after a while, Gortz is um, essentially, he's revealed, he's he's unmasked, he's apprehended, and he becomes a prisoner of uh, Irish state, Actually, the, um, the other very interesting episode that occurs, the, um, the attempt by Sean Russell and Frank Ryan to get to Ireland, and the big question is, what was uh, Russell and Ryan's mission to Ireland? What was it all about? What was the object that they had to achieve? Ryan never knew. He was able, never able to discern what the mission was, but it seemed to involve an approach not just to the IRA leadership, but also to higher authorities. Perhaps, and this is one question we have to ask ourselves, perhaps there had been an attempt by Berlin to reach de Valera or members of his government and present a German offer similar to the British offer that occurred in June, 1940. And it's around about that time that the, uh, the German mission, um, put together by Helmut Klissman um, essentially sending Ryan and Russell uh, by submarine to Ireland, and dropping them on the west coast. Uh, essentially it's around about that time that the offer of unity is made by Britain. So there is a, there is seemingly some kind of attempt to reach somebody in authority and power in Dublin, but we don't really know why they were sent, why there was an attempt to land Russell back in Ireland in 1940. Um, but the timing is very significant. Um, German forces are victorious on the continent. They clearly believe that they've won or will win. And uh, there's clearly an attempt uh, made to communicate to somebody in Ireland. Uh, if we read between the lines, I suppose maybe the Germans were intending to offer something similar to what the British were, were seemingly prepared to offer in 1940, such as unity, but... Um, no agent was ever sent to Ireland after this particular mission who revealed any desire on, on the part of Berlin to actually to make an approach to the Irish government directly. And Most of their uh, attempts to bolster basically the IRA in Ireland or to sort of coordinate with them in terms of espionage, most of it seemed to be directed not against the Irish state but against Britain and was less interested in Irish Republican nationalist aspirations of unification or extreme or extremist IRA members um, were interested in.
1: Yeah, my understanding is that, you know, the Hitler government in Germany, the Nazi government, that were happy enough with Irish neutrality insofar as it denied these ports and airfields to Britain. But what they hoped for was some sort of insurgency in Northern Ireland, which would kind of eat up British resources.
2: You know, Ireland is very well served in terms of its uh, diplomacy between both belligerents, both Britain and Germany. Um, De Valera was incredibly fortunate to have a sympathetic British representative in Dublin, Sir John Maffey, and a very sympathetic uh, German representative in Dublin, uh, Dr. Edward Hempel. And he really has a very good line into both these um, missions in Dublin, both the German and British missions. And he has the ears of two men who are able to say to both their governments, this country is not going to do anything to offend or upset or to uh, hinder either side in this conflict. Um, And Mafi is telling London, leave them alone, you know, sort of their, you know, Essentially, they're not going to go any further than this on this particular policy. In 1940, Maffei advises them uh, they don't necessarily think that we may prevail in this war, but at the same time, irrespective of whether we prevail or not, they're still going to stick to neutrality, which uh, still is better than them abandoning neutrality and considering throwing in their lot with one belligerent or another. So Maffei's advice to London is essentially um, you're better off leaving the Irish alone or well enough alone because their adherence to the neutral policy actually helps us in some ways. And that's the opinion of quite a number of people in Whitehall who constantly write memos to the Cabinet Office and to Chamberlain and, to, and, and then later after Chamberlain dies to Churchill, counselling that it's better to leave uh, Southern Ireland alone, let it be neutral if they want it to be neutral, Uh, because there are ways in which uh, we can get what we want with the assistance of neutral Ireland. And Edward Hempel is also sending messages back to Berlin. It's of a very similar nature. And that um, he knows, de Valera has explained to him that we must have a certain consideration towards Britain because of our proximity to Britain, because of our relationship with Britain, because we have trading links, we have... Considerable uh, number of UK citizens living in Ireland, and a considerable number of our own nationals living in the UK, and it's it's an economic factor, and also we share a land border with the United Kingdom through Northern Ireland. And he explains that you know our neutrality will, to a certain extent, favour Britain, but there will be limitations to that. And as he hopes, Hempel communicates with Berlin, and he communicates with his senior colleagues in the Reich foreign ministry and he advises them that Ireland don't present a threat to the interests of the Reich uh, and therefore attacking Ireland, bombing Ireland, you know, unless of course one is considering sort of an aggressive incursion It's not advisable. There's no particular reason why we should fear or suspect the Irish government, their, their intentions are genuine. They just want to stay out of the war and Berlin listens to Hampel and that's one of the reasons why, apart from some bombings in certain parts of the country and a couple of other sort of incursions of, you know, sort of the dropping of agents and a few other un- unfortunate incidents, such as the torpedoing of Irish merchant shipping, uh, Ireland gets through the war without any overtly aggressive acts being made by. Nazi Germany.
1: How did America or the United States entering the war impinge on Irish neutrality? Like Churchill apparently seems to have made another offer of, of unity in return for Ireland entering the war.
2: It's not an offer of unity and I, I would have to say at all that uh, it is considered uh, to be the, the second or the third offer of unity that was you know sort of either contemplated and then scrapped or contemplated and then you see, the reason um, this is communicated is because of the euphoria that Churchill feels because of the fact that the United States have entered the war and the timing of the telegram, although some historians disagree with the idea that Churchill had sent the telegram while he was uh, three sheets of the wind. Um, one has to factor in uh, the fact that Churchill, you know, was known to sort of drink late into the night. It was not unusual, and uh, that he had quite a constitution um, irrespective in re- in of the fact that he consumed a massive amount of alcohol, that um, he was quite in control of his senses. Um, so whether he was drunk or not, we don't know, um, but um, it's, it may have been interpreted that he was drunk when this telegram came in. It was typically Churchillian, consistent with uh, the, the, the kind of rhetoric that he was uh, want to come out with. It's a very simple message is, uh, now is your chance, now or never, a nation once again. It's received in the British Legation offices um, in Dublin at two o'clock in the morning, and Sir John Maffey gets up and he brings it to Eamon de Valera at his home in Black Rock. He arrives at around maybe 3, 3.30 in the morning, and um, knocks on his door, and de Valera comes in, he's in his dressing gown, and he invites, uh, he invites Sir John in. And de Valera comes in, and he is handed this telegram, and he reads it, reads it aloud, and then he looks over at Sir John, who says nothing. It, the famous rumour or fable is that he said that we better let him sleep this one off. Apparently, he just, he just casually discussed what had originally been discussed before in 1940 and the reasons that he, he, reiterated the reasons why he turned it down. And apparently they discussed 10, 20 minutes. They casually discussed what Churchill's meaning was. And if it was referring to this, then uh, we're better off just basically leaving this until we can discuss it properly or at the very least, you know, sort of, you know, it needs to be brought through proper channels. Um, whatever he meant and nothing ever came of it and um Maffrey left just after four o'clock uh, that night and went returned to his home and nothing was heard from churchill again in other words de valera didn't reply correctly that was it it was uh, it was just it was just considered uh by probably by churchill to be an opportunity for the irish to jump in at that particular point and i think the americans were probably of this opinion as well the Americans seem to have this attitude, and I must say it's an extraordinarily arrogant attitude, that basically once we're in the war, everybody should just drop their neutrality, you know, and, and join us, the because it's very clearly, you know, a moral struggle now that we're in. And that's not how the Irish saw this at all. There was as much reason for the Irish to maintain their neutrality in 1941, even after, the Americans entered the war as there were, had been before that. Belfast had been absolutely gutted uh, by the Blitz in uh, April, May, nineteen forty-one. They were attacked three times, and uh, the major Blitz happening sort of towards the towards the end of April. And it was uh, it was an absolutely ghastly event where nearly one thousand one hundred people had been killed. Fifty-six thousand houses were destroyed. Over 100,000 refugees, you know, pouring out of Belfast into the lane, country lanes and roads leading out of Belfast. It was an, it was an absolutely unbelievable, appalling uh, spectacle for people who witnessed it. And also a few bombs had been dropped in Dublin and just one £1,000 bomb had basically leveled 33 houses and killed nearly, I don't know how many people were killed, about 40 30 people? God, Thirty four. Yes. 30, 40, and about the same number of houses um, completely destroyed or damaged uh, beyond repair. And that's just one £1,000 bomb. The Irish government, in refusing to be drawn into the war, and it's a perfectly reasonable consideration in view of how destructive the war is proving to be on Irish soil and in Northern Ireland. I mean, the only thing you could say is after the Americans did join the war, certainly not covert aid,
1: understated aid to the Allied side certainly ramped up.
2: Certainly, the Irish get the picture that the Americans are not very understanding of uh, the Irish position any longer. They're not very tolerant of it, even as a formerly neutral country as they are. One of the things that, um, that occurs in 1941, the Frank Aiken mission to to Washington, where one of the things he's looking for is he's looking to purchase arms from the Americans to arm the Irish military. I suppose the Americans logically draw questions. You know, sort of what kind of invader are you looking to repel? And Aiken makes it clear that you know the Britisher is likely to invade Ireland as uh, the Germans. And when he says this to Roosevelt in the Oval Office, Roosevelt um, pulls. A tablecloth off a side table, a trolley table, while uh, lunch and uh, served. Uh, he ends up flinging about 20, 30 pieces of cutlery right across the Oval Office floor. And he just yells at Aiken, don't be so bloody ridiculous. And it gives Aiken a real dressing down, and Aiken and Brennan, the Irish representative in Washington, um essentially are shown, they're shown short shrift by Roosevelt and um, Roosevelt basically washes his hands of them and sort of invites them to leave. It's um, not a great meeting, it's not a great moment in terms of uh, Irish relations with America. We talked about Hempel and jo- Sir John Maffey and how good their relationship was with Eamon de Valera. But one thing we haven't really discussed is uh, how bad de Valera's relationship was with America's, uh, the United States representative in Dublin, David Gray. And there's one particular reason why David Gray, his relationship with uh, de Valera is uh, so appallingly bad. And it's because of David Gray's lack of professionalism as a diplomat. He is not a professionally trained diplomat. He ends up getting the job really because he is uh, a cousin of Eleanor Roosevelt. He actually is not really Uh, light within the State Department at all. And getting a position like this in neutral Ireland is not really considered to be at all a prestigious posting. And Grey really breaks a lot of diplomatic protocol in terms of a lot lot of his behaviour, and he he doesn't behave according to any protocol. His behaviour is very erratic. He's a big believer in the occult. Gray's overindulgence in the occult included taking advice from the ghost of Ulysses Grant on the conducting of his affairs in Ireland, you know, and with de Valera in particular, and, and, and various different other figures. And so he was claiming to be interacting with the ghosts or with the spirits of, like, I mean, famous figures and taking their counsel on how to handle, you know, his particular position in Dublin. One has to question his judgment, particularly when it comes to the American note crisis, Which is actually like, I mean, I think Grey could potentially have been accused of treason against his own country because he ends up indirectly revealing to de Valera and to the Irish government that, uh, you know, the invasion of Europe is about to happen because of the nature of his approach, which comes across as an ultimatum to the Irish that basically if they don't tell uh, German and Japanese um, representatives and Italian representatives to get out of Dublin. They don't end this kind of maintenance of uh, de Valera's uh, n- neutrality in terms of diplomacy towards the Axis powers. In particular, if there's any failure of an allied invasion of the continent of the Europe, which a lot of people expected that time, that there could possibly be an invasion, an Anglo-American invasion of Irish territory and for security reasons. Immediately the cat is out of the bag. De Valera and the government know that an invasion is underway and that their allies are concerned about security and they end up making direct contact with the British, saying what's all this about possibly been invaded by British and American forces if your invasion fails? And De Valera more or less makes it clear uh, we will not be held directly responsible the failure of any such military operations on the continent of Europe. We're doing all we can to counteract Axis agents, Axis espionage. We are already cooperating with your intelligence forces. And Churchill, who is not exactly on the best terms of Dublin, or even Churchill, an embarrassed Churchill, makes indirect contact with Dublin to reassure the Irish that such as what Grey warned might happen would not happen. Under any circumstances, and Churchill reassures the Irish government, no, 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 it's up. He he conveys it as something of a miscommunication, and that that is not the case. And what this results in is a uh, an American agent, an OSS agent, ends up uh, being posted to work with Irish Army intelligence officers. And what happens is a form of like covert cooperation between. American intelligence and Irish military intelligence begins around this time and has been happening for quite some time. You've, you've had, uh, you know, the Ar- Irish uh, military have been involved in helping the Allies, you know, with code breaking. Dr. Richard Hayes, the director of the National Library of Ireland, is one of the best world leading code breakers. And he breaks codes that baffle whole huts of Bletchley Park. He breaks them during his lunch breaks. He ends up breaking the Goertz cipher, which is hugely helpful to the work of uh, cryptographers in, uh, in Bletchley Park. And it's the sharing of intelligence and also the, the work of Irish Army military intelligence operatives in counteracting the work of Axis intelligence operatives in Dublin also is considered to be part of the deception operation for D-Day, uh, Operation Fortitude. In the operations in Dublin form a big part of the deception operations, and ultimately, at the end of the war in 1945, three Irish Army officers, presumably intelligence officers, are recommended for decorations by the Pentagon. And the Irish government have to politely decline this uh, with some level of embarrassment to say no, um, thank you, but uh, we cannot accept decorations from foreign belligerents uh, because we are a neutral country. But such is the extent to which Irish military intelligence assisted the Allied cause and helped the Allies ultimately to win the war.
1: And I mean, just to finish up, Joseph, um, the last act of World War II, as far as Ireland is concerned, is, is often uh, taken to be de Valera's visit to the German legation in Dublin to convey his condolences on the death of Adolf Hitler. Uh, and what's your
2: take on this episode? It, this is my take. It happened, but there's no signature. And this is one of the things that uh, it, has, it, it has to be investigated. The episode of the approach uh, by De to um, Dr. Edward Hempel at the end of the war, um, it needs to be studied and properly investigated. I think Michael Kennedy has probably come closer than anybody to sort of explaining what actually uh, happened during this particular episode. Uh, that one has to put this in context of what had happened in these particular days. You'd had, um, in the lead up to VE Day in Victory in Europe, you'd had a series of episodes happening within Dublin where you have, you know, you have the burning of flags in Trinity College Dublin, you have the flags riots in the lead up to VE Day. And this provokes a visit by Frederick Boland, the Assistant Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs, to Sir John Maffey to apologise for the burning of the Union Jack. And um, this is not the kind of thing that uh, the Irish government want to have happening in the last days of World War II. They don't want displays of pro-German or anti-allied sympathy. And they don't want to have celebrations uh, of Allied victory in Europe also, resulting in fisticuffs with uh, Republicans. like I mean, This is what happens at the Trinity College riots. You have a lot of people in Trinity College who either go off to serve in the British Armed Forces during the war, or they have friends who are serving in the British Armed Forces. So there's very clearly a very pro-allied element within Trinity College. And these UCD students who are participating in these riots led by Charlie Hawley, you know, they have different views. It's not necessarily representative of their college community, but the fact of the matter is there's a very strong faction within the UCD law and, you know, the debating societies that are actually very much kind of, you know, they're pro-Irish neutrality and they're very much, they're, you know, their sympathies are with the cause of the Irish state and they're not particularly interested in particularly willing to sort of join ranks with Trinity students waving Union Jacks and, and American flags and um, this causes a certain amount of resentment so this is a very embarrassing episode from a diplomatic point of view in the days leading up to victory you have a certain amount of concern within dublin as regards what is going to happen post war and how you know we should represent you know sort of our neutrality whether you know we should tone down how we Justified our neutrality to uh, the Allies. In other words, sort of retrospectively say we were neutral, yes, but we were very much uh, pro Allied and very much on their side. And De Valera demurs from this whole idea. He feels that we have nothing to be embarrassed about in terms of our neutrality and we should demonstrate the extent to which we were neutral. And he does this by paying a visit to Edward Hempel, apparently not put his signature on a book of condolence. But to thank Hempel for everything that he did to prevent Nazi Germany from laying an aggressive hand upon Ireland or from uh, refraining from any attacks upon neutral Ireland or certainly any any direct attacks or overt attacks upon uh, Irish territory. He paid a visit to him which apparently lasted for just under an hour and they might have had coffee, I, I believe. And um, apparently, Hempel was offered asylum in Ireland, should he choose to take it. Um, there was another thing as well, the German negation would have to be turned over to Allied authorities uh, as part of the terms of basically the surrender of Germany. So this is one, of, one big reason why Hempel is offered asylum, by, apparently offered asylum by De Valera for his own personal safety and protection. But this occurs at a moment after the liberation of the concentration camps in Europe, Bergen-Belsen, Buchenwald, Auschwitz had been liberated earlier in '45, And for de Valera to take this step is perceived extremely negatively by various governments and by various different interest groups. It's seen as lacking sensitivity and it's seen as a mistake. And Frederick Boland, who just a few days earlier had apologized for the burning of the Union Jack, uh, pleads with de Valera not to do this, and de Valera refuses to listen and he does it. It is something that has haunted our understanding or our perception of Irish neutrality ever since. There's two things that I think are regrettable in terms of the conduct of Irish neutrality. One is the treatment of Irish Army deserters by the Irish authorities for the act of desertion during the Second World War. Many people would disagree with it. I personally think that that was very dishonourable, and shouldn't we shouldn't have happened. And the second thing is the approach to the German legation, the, the very direct public approach to the German legation at the end of the Second World War. It was a very provocative act. It clearly provoked. Churchill, in referring to Ireland and the very unflattering tones that he used um, in addressing neutral Ireland and its conduct during the Second World War, which was, but it's a very important point that needs to be made. I've never seen evidence of a signature by de Valera in condolence for the death of Adolf Hitler. I've never seen a condolence book, I've never heard of anybody who's actually read the condolence book and i would like to see it and if if that condolence book exists or if there's a piece of paper with devil air signature on it that seems to convey an expression of condolences on the death of Adolf hitler then i would believe it but the funny thing is i've never heard of it and i and there seems to be a lack of documentary evidence uh on that and i've asked around and nobody else seems to know about it so i think in terms of the signing of condolences i think that that is a myth that needs to be uh Disproved or else um, it needs to be unveiled for the myth of And
0: finally,
1: Joseph, just to wrap up, um, could we say, I guess, in conclusion, that the Irish state uh, exerted or expressed its sovereignty, but it traded its sovereignty for u- any possibility of unity?
2: It's a very good question. And I would say, um, in answer to it, I think sovereignty and the maintenance of sovereignty was always the end objective. It was always about the preservation of our sovereignty. Tied up with the preservation of our sovereignty was also the ensuring of uh, internal security, the prevention of civil war. De Valera again and again said that this was to do, it was to do with partition, it was to do with the maintenance of our sovereignty and our our independence and the freedoms we enjoyed. And it's to do with um, preventing a civil war and, you know, sort of, you know, the triggering of one faction or another into some form of insurrection. The policy of neutrality commands respect from a former loyalists who have sons serving in the British Army to extremist Republicans who have dreams of the United Ireland. And the fact that De Valera has that very resolute support for neutrality across all factions and supported by you know, the political representatives on both sides of the aisle at all and in the Senate, it's a very important part. Of the position, the stance that he takes, I think in rejecting uh, the offer of unity, I think he was both safeguarding the state while also acknowledging a problem with the, the whole aspiration of unity, which is the consent principle. And when we look at the Good Friday Agreement, the whole idea, the constitutional changes that the Irish government made as an act of goodwill to facilitate the Northern Ireland peace process, rely upon the consent of all communities on the island to the principle of national unification and that includes the unionist community well, this we could trace this back to de valera's rejection this whole idea that the, the northern ireland unionist community and the government represented by lord kirk Gavin were not consulted um, in terms of you know this offer of unity and the fact that irish nationalists leading irish nationalists like de valera consider unionist consent to unity to be an important principle that early on is very revealing in terms of our retrospective understanding of what uh, irish unity should entail lastly i just wanted to say that in terms of the debate about the morality of neutrality and i think this is a very important point whether Neutrality, in light of all the crimes that were committed on the continent of Europe, and whether, you know, the rights and freedoms that the Allies fought for during the Second World War, and whether whether neutrality was morally dubious in these circumstances. The freedoms and rights that Irish nationalists, Irish uh, Republican nationalists, fought for in the Irish Revolution, you know, for national independence, the same freedoms and rights and liberties that were fought for by the revolutionary generation in the irish revolution were exactly the same as the freedoms and rights that the allies fought for in the second world war and as a neutral country we were exercising our right to be a neutral country and to be a neutral sovereign country and we were safeguarding our freedoms as a neutral democracy which safeguarded the same principles that the allies were looking to to preserve and to enforce around the world. And if the Allies had transgressed our neutrality, they would have been violating the principles for which they were fighting. Principles which are at the very core of our national existence. Ireland had a right to be neutral and it was the correct policy for our state to adopt. It was the correct one for our society. And we ended up preserving our country for future generations by remaining neutral in the war. But the fact that so many thousands of Irish fought for the Allied cause and served in British uniform, fighting for these same rights and freedoms, I think is a sufficient enough Irish contribution. And I think it weighs the balance in neutral Ireland's favour at the end of the day in the Second World War. Neutral Ireland should be acknowledged for what it did do and not for what it didn't do.
1: Okay, Joseph Quinn, thank you very much.
0: So that was John Dorney and Dr. Joseph Quinn from the UK National Archives in London. If you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, IrishHistoryShow.ie. Subscribe to the podcast on any of the podcast platforms like iTunes, Spotify, whatever. And uh, if you get a chance, please rate and review the show as well, as it really helps us. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or on Facebook facebook.com forward slash The Irish History Show. And if you've enjoyed this episode or any previous episodes of the show, please contact us and let us know. So my name is Cahill Brennan and until next time, thank you very much for listening.